listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Good morning, church. Um, my name is Andrew McClure, and um, if we haven't had the chance to meet, um, I am the uh, church planting pastor for our new church in Richmond Hill. Um, thank you for, uh, if you're familiar with kind of the journey of planting that church, this church, CBC Savannah, has been prayerfully considering planting that church for years. Um, and uh, as you've prayed, I want to encourage you to continue to pray. Um, I'm not going to give any updates this morning, but um, I just really covet your prayers. Really pray that God would build his church in that community and in that, uh, that area, um, and I uh, would love for you to continue to join me in praying for that. Um, if you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. We're gonna pick right up where we left off last week. Bill taught on the golden rule in Matthew 7, verse 12, and we're gonna start in verse 13. And as you turn there, um, let, me, let me take a minute to kind of review the gospel of Matthew and the series that we're in with all authority, um, and specifically the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapter five through seven. So in the gospel of Matthew, Matthew has, has made it abundantly clear that Jesus of Nazareth is the long-awaited for, the long-expected Messiah. That word Messiah just means anointed one, the king who would come to save people from their sins. And when we come to Matthew chapter five in the Sermon on the Mount, that king, Jesus of Nazareth, teaches. He, he calls his disciples, those who wish to follow him, to himself, and he teaches. And he teaches, to be honest, some, some really radical demands of behavior. And these behaviors, these ethics that he teaches in this sermon um, they, they distinctly delineate those who follow him in the kingdom of God and those who don't, either in the kingdom of this world or through the kingdom of the religious institutions of first century Judaism. We've heard so far in, in the kingdom, and this is just a paraphrase, not all of it for sure, um, but how our righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The disciples have heard about um, how we're supposed to be perfect, as Matthew 5, 48 teaches, as our heavenly Father is perfect. Let that sink in for a second. If you wanna follow Jesus, the only demand for you is perfection. It's a pretty radical demand, is it not? And then ultimately, Jesus culminates those principles of following him and his kingdom through what we studied last week in the golden rule. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them without reciprocity, without expecting anything in return, take the first step. It's a really hard principle to apply. As we come to verse 13, and then really the remainder of chapter seven, we're gonna find Christ landing his proverbial plane. He's, he's coming, the, the sermon's coming to a, a conclusion, and like all good sermons, he's gonna demand a response. As we've heard from chapter five, six, and now in, uh, in seven, that teaching demands a response. It's gonna require a response. And Jesus is gonna illustrate the intended response um, by giving us four groups of twos, okay? Four groups of twos. Two things that will contrast one another that shows what it means to follow Jesus in the kingdom of God and those that don't. What true discipleship looks like and what false discipleship looks like. And then we're gonna look at the first group, two groupings of twos today. We're gonna see a narrow gate and a wide gate and then we're gonna see um, a healthy tree and a diseased tree. So, if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and look at our first pairing of twos. Verse, let's see here, sorry about that. All right, verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. 
For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. We have two gates here. We have a wide gate that's, that's easy, very inviting, very accommodating. A lot of people are gravitating towards this gate, but ultimately and undoubtedly that will lead us to destruction. And then Jesus talks about this narrow gate. And in fact, he's commanding us, inviting us, bidding us to enter this narrow gate. That way is gonna be hard. It's gonna be tight. It's gonna be exclusive. Few are gonna walk that path, but ultimately it will lead to life. Now, I don't know about you, when I think of gates, and, and even as I studied this and I thought about gates, the gates that kind of pop into my head and, and probably most of your heads are things like a, a chain link fence gate. I have four kids under the age of seven. Another gate that pops into my mind is a baby gate, right? Things designed to kind of keep things in or keep things out, but those are not the gates we need to have in our minds as we read this passage today. These aren't the gates that Jesus was referencing. Jesus was referencing large city gates, old ancient cities that are walled from the outside and there are gates leading out of that city to particular destinations. So if you've heard anything about my, my wife and I's story, we've uh, lived a considerable amount of time overseas and, and we've had the privilege of really walking through gates like, like what Jesus is referencing today. And I thought, I, I'm gonna show you a few pictures of some of the gates that we've personally walked through many times um, just so that you can kind of have this in your mind to illustrate what this means for us is Jesus is telling us to enter these gates. All right, the first one I wanna show you is a gate from North Africa. Make sure you can see that, yep. So you see this, this broad, wide gate right there in the middle. If you can look really carefully, you can take your, your donkeys through that gate, you can take your family through that gate, you can go to the market, bring all your bags through that gate. It's wide, it's accommodating. You can fit a lot of things through that gate. But notice to, to your right, that, that little narrow door. That's the type of gate Jesus is saying, enter the narrow way. It's not quite as accommodating, not quite as inviting, right? The second gate I wanna show you is, is one in our town of South Asia. Um, walk through this gate a lot of times, same concept. Broad, wide gate. You can fit your rickshaws. You can bring a lot of things through that gate. But over to the right, there's gonna be, there's gonna be a little narrow entrance. Harder to see, harder to find. Few will walk through that because it's not quite as inviting. These are the types of gates that Jesus is referencing here. In fact, in this gate particularly, if I wanted to leave this city and visit a city by the name of Ajmer, I would walk out the Ajmeri gate. The name of the gate would actually be labeled or named for the city to which it leads, right? Because the destination that we desire is largely dependent upon the gate we walk through. You with me? And that's exactly what we see in in this verse, enter by the narrow gate. You want life? That's the way to go. We have to enter by the narrow gate, but if we wanna end up in destruction, there's a, there's a more accommodating wide gate there for us. So, in our passage, Jesus tells us in verse 13, enter by the narrow gate because it leads to life. So the question that came into my mind as I prepared for this, and maybe it's a question that you're asking yourself, is if Jesus really wants us to find life, and, and by life, we mean eternal life. Why make the gate so narrow? Why is the gate narrow? That's the first question I wanna answer for us today. And the answer to this is, is offensive. It can be hurtful. But stick with me, it's, it's, it's still true, okay? The reason the gate is narrow is because it is emphatically exclusive. There is only one gate, enter the 
narrow gate that leads to life. Many deem this our evangelical decision. Where do you want to spend eternity? If you want to spend eternity with Christ in heaven and possess eternal life, there's only one gate you can walk through to get to that destination. Scripture makes this really, really clear. There's only one way to the Father. And I can say that authoritatively because the same imagery is used by Jesus himself in the Gospel of John. John chapter 10, verse nine says, I am the door. Enter the word gate there. I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. We cannot be saved by entering through anything else other than the finished work of Jesus on the cross. It's the same imagery we'll see in next week's passage in Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter. Enter what? The kingdom of heaven. We wanna enter the kingdom of heaven. We wanna walk towards eternal life. There's only one gate that'll get us there, and it's Jesus. He's the gate into this kingdom. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody can come to the Father except through him. And the reason this is hard, the reason it's narrow, it's because it's offensive. It, regardless of what continent I've lived on, anytime we've had the opportunity to share the exclusive claims of Christ as it regards salvation, the same resistance is met. And, and it's, they're good questions. Questions like, I thought you said God was love. If God was truly loving, why would he only make one way? How, how intolerant of him. If he really wanted us to have life and he was really kind and really just, wouldn't he just accept me as I am? Wouldn't he have multiple paths to eternity? I know those are questions that we often ask. There's questions that, that you may be asking. But I, I stand and say, listen, the gate's still emphatically exclusive. Although it hurts sometimes to think about the exclusivity of Christ, the truth remains. To enter eternal life, we have to walk through the narrow gate, and it's singular. He is the gate. And every time we resist that, every time we feel that offense in our hearts, the exclusive claims of Christ, um, it's because we usually assume, right, that God is unloving or that God is unkind or God is unjust. But, but let me offer a different perspective for you. Maybe instead of being frustrated or offended that God would not offer multiple ways, what if we just thought for a second about the, the goodness and the love of God that actually provided a way? Right? Let's think about that for a second because we don't deserve eternal life. The consequences of sin is death, destruction. And if you deem yourself a sinner, you're part of that group. And if you don't deem yourself a sinner, <clears throat> you're still part of that group. <laughs> We're on that broad path. We are walking towards destruction and we deserve it. It is our sin that has separated us from God. But that he, in his love, because he's loving, because he's kind, because he just is just, gave his son for us to pay the penalty for our sin and restore us back to God has, in effect, provided us a way to eternal life. And that is worth us going, praise the Lord. But we get so caught up on why we need to just accept it the way I am. Why, why can't he provide multiple ways? Instead, we need to think about the length that he went to in his mercy to actually provide us a way. And he has. One commentator wrote that questioning God's love because he only gave us one way is like putting Nobel Peace Prize winner Sir Alexander Fleming on trial for only giving us penicillin. Because the gate is emphatically exclusive, it makes it narrow. And many choose not to enter because, because of the offense that that statement 
claims, but I encourage you, don't think about it from the perspective of he's so intolerant. Think about the lengths he went to to provide a way for us. So, we've answered the question, why is the gate so narrow? It's because it's exclusive. So, in light of what I just said, that he has actually provided us a way, we should stop asking, why is it so narrow? And instead ask, why do we go so wide? Why do so many choose to go the wide path? Let me give you three reasons for that. Verse 13, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy. Reason number one, it's just easier. To go through the wide gate, to avoid the narrow gate is so much easier. Remember the pictures I showed you. You, you can drive your cars, your boat, your family, your career, your baggage. You can, that gate that is wide is incredibly accommodating. There's no need for you to remove your sins. There's no need for you to embrace repentance. There's no need for you to remove self-righteousness or pride. It will accept you as you are. There's no self-denial. There's no cross. No need to change. No, no limit on your luggage. That wide gate beckons. Come on in as you are. Find happiness and find it now. You wanna feel happiness? Whatever will fulfill you, come through the wide gate because it's incredibly accommodating. But church, look where it leads. It may feel right now, but the gate that we choose will lead us to a destination and the Bible says that wide, easy gate leads to destruction. That wide gate is the, the path to instant gratification. Instant gratification as defined by the desire to experience pleasure or fulfillment without delay, without deferment, and without denial. It's easy, have it now. Practicing delayed gratification is hard, right? Anybody? No? You ever been hungry and go to the grocery store? You ever tried to teach it to your kids? Oh man, talking about practicing delayed gratification is impossible. Teaching it to a five-year-old, it, I don't, it's just sanctifying. Let me give you an example. I, I do have four kids, and just a few weeks ago when it was one of the weekends that wasn't 48, it was 84, you know, and they were like two weeks apart, but we went to the St. Simons, we're about an hour from there in Richmond Hill, and we decided to go to the beach. Just wanted a good family day, took our kids to the beach, spent a few hours there, took them to the pier, if you're familiar with that area, got some ice cream, um, and my kids, they, they earn their money by doing some chores around the house, and, and our oldest three had $5 each. And they thought, Dad, can we go into some of these trinket stores? If, again, if you're familiar with the area, you know what I'm talking about. There's stores that just kind of line the pier. And they said, we'd love to go in and, and spend our money. And we thought, yeah, if you got $5, you know, whatever you want, find something for $5 and buy it. I had no idea at the time that breathing the air of those stores actually cost $5. So we go in. And, and our kids can't find anything for $5. Now note, I didn't say they can't find anything, okay? They found some things they wanted. In fact, my five-year-old found a wooden knight sword. Four foot long, you know, immediate nickname, sibling crusher. Like he wanted it so bad, he had to have it. And he said, Dad, here's my $5, I want the sword, found it, let's go. So, well, bud, you know, and I'm, I'm getting on his level, I'm trying to be patient, and I'm like, buddy, that, that's, that's $25. That's not five, you don't have enough money. Y'all, just one of those like, oh, get me out of here, Lord. Like Maranatha, like he's, he's losing his mind, screaming at us, telling us he wants the sword, he has to have it now and, and take my dollars. And to make, it, to make it worse, you know, there's like a whole middle school youth group. I don't know why they're there. They have the same colored shirts on and they're just like staring at us in the corners. we're having this moment. And I know they're thinking the same thing you're probably thinking. It's, it's only $20. 
why wouldn't you just break down and buy them? It's only $20, and, and there's two reasons for that. I got four kids, Re- reason number one. It's only $20 that turns into 80 like that, right? And that's a tank of gas today. So you gotta be careful you know, with what you're doing. So that's reason number one. Reason number two is I could do it. I could break down. I could meet his need in this moment and it would make him happy. But when he's later as an adult, when he learns that life doesn't work that way, it's gonna be a life of destruction for him, right? So don't judge me. There are moments I'll break down and buy my kids, but I want them to learn that delaying gratification is the road to life. I don't wanna put them on that road to destruction. So what does that mean for us? That the wide way is easy. What does that mean for us in context of the Sermon on the Mount? It means that to judge someone's speck without dealing with the own log in your eye is easier, right? It means that to gratify your lust by laying up for yourselves treasures on earth is easier. It means to gratify your gluttony because who likes to fast is easier. It means that it's easier to hold grudges than to forgive. It's easier to pretend that you're spiritual and practice your righteousness in front of others than letting God actually get into your heart and root out sin. It's easier to live by an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It's easier to hate your enemies. Let's be honest. As we look at the demands of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, it is easier to not live in alignment with those things. So we choose to walk away from the narrow gate and to walk that wide gate because, number one, it's easier. It's just easy. But the second reason we actually find in the the section above our section today in verse 11 Bill preached on this a few weeks ago. He said, if you then who are evil, the second reason we walk the wide gate is we are prone to evil. We're, we're prone to it. I would actually say it this way. It's not that you're choosing to walk on the wide, wide, walk through the wide gate or walk on the wide road. You were born on it. It's called the doctrine of original sin. We were born with, with a propensity towards evil to spurn the narrow gate and to walk a wide way. We want to accommodate our own desires and not deny them to live and surrender to King Jesus as he lays out in the Sermon on the Mount. That means that apart from Christ, so without Christ, we have been given up to the evil lusts of our hearts, as Romans tells us that we are dead in our trespasses and our sins, that we do live in the passions of our flesh, that we are bent to carrying out the desires of sin. Church, the cards are stacked against you. Even if you woke up and said, you know, I don't wanna, I don't wanna walk this, narrow, this, this wide way anymore. I wanna change, I wanna course correct. Even if you wanted to, the Bible teaches that sin is so powerful in your life apart from Christ, you don't have the power to but you can't, you're enslaved to that sin. So you may want to cognitively, but you lack the power to walk it out. Cards are stacked against us. For us to get off the wide road, we have to have something more powerful than the power of sin in our life to course correct us. And there's only one thing. Again, going back to the exclusive claims of Christ, there's only one that has ever lived a life and tempted, just as you and I are tempted, without sin. His name is Jesus. And not only did he live a perfect life that you can't live, he died a death that you deserved in order to crush the power of sin in your life, to give you a new heart so that you could course correct and walk through that narrow gate. Are you with me? Without Jesus, 
We're prone to evil. And so many choose to walk that wide road because like a bug to a light or a gnat to me. We, we are prone to gravitate towards that wide road. Reason number three, enter by the narrow gate, verse 13, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. We crave conformity. On the wide road, you will find the masses. We all wanna belong. We all want to feel secure. We all want to, to, to be a part of something. Nobody likes to look different, to be different, to stand out. So what do we do? Instead of walking this narrow road of Christ, we, we conform to the social expectations of the many because the crowds let us feel like we belong to something. The wide road and those who enter by it are many. Those who walk the narrow are few. Church, those who enter through the gate of Christ and walk the way of Jesus will not conform to the societal pressures of this culture. Jesus is teaching his disciples here and he's still teaching us today that to follow him is a despised minority movement. It is so much easier to just go with the crowds than to obey Jesus in a culture that doesn't want us to obey Jesus. That's why it's wide, that's why there are many. Let me illustrate my point. Talked about my kids, our oldest has over the last several months really expressed genuine interest in following Jesus. And, and I'm so thankful for the people in his life, uh, other than his mother and I, that are, that are trying to teach him what it means to actually follow Jesus. Um, for instance, his old children's pastor, the church that we were at before we moved here, um, took Josiah, our oldest, and, and some of the other kids from our church through a class they called the follow class. Four weeks every Sunday where they're teaching these kids what it actually means to follow Jesus. In one of the weeks, they taught on the cost of discipleship, that you have to pick up your cross daily and deny yourself, even renounce all that you have in order to follow Jesus, a radical demand, is it not? And he's teaching my seven-year-old that you have to do that. To truly follow Jesus, you have to count the cost. And he illustrated that with these kids by, by playing a simple game. He, he played follow the leader. Everybody knows how this works. The leader, who in this case is the children's pastor, would skip down the hall and the kids would have to skip down the hall. He would twirl down the hall and the kids would have to twirl down the hall. But what the kids weren't aware of is that before the game began, he told the other kids, the kids that are in their classrooms who are not a part of the father class, when you see us coming, I want you to run to the door and point and laugh. Make a spectacle of it. When you see us coming down the hall, playing follow the leader, run and point and laugh. So here they come, skipping down the hall, twirling down the hall, the kids are following, they're having a great time. The laughter ensues. What do you think happened? Every single kid, over time, but without a doubt, stopped following. So the children's pastor was able to take them back into that classroom and kind of debrief that moment and let that be an illustration that to follow Jesus, we have got to move away from the crowds. It is a despised minority movement. So as we kind of conclude <clears throat> this first group of twos here, what does this mean for us today? How should we respond in light of Jesus' teaching? There's one verse, I mean one word that he starts this passage off with, verse 13, enter. An appropriate response for us would be to obey his invitation to enter. 
Enter the narrow gate, but you can't come standing on your own works. You can't come in your own strength. You can't come believing that simply by being a good person, you have gained access. You can't course correct. This road, this narrow path is not broad enough for Jesus and. It's Jesus alone, through faith alone. And I encourage you to enter. And you're going, well, you're not making it seem very attractive. You're telling about how hard it is. It is. It's all about the destination. It's for the joy set before us that we endure that ridicule. And ultimately, this path will lead to life, eternal life. But I want to let you in on a little secret. Living for Jesus can be hard, but it is full of life. Even today, it is full of life because the yoke he promises to give you as you walk is what? It's easy. It's light. It'll prove rest for your souls. So I encourage you to enter, if you haven't, enter by this narrow way. Second response, I think, in, in light of this first section here is, is to ask, am I really walking this narrow path? Is my life different than the world around me? Is my love distinct? Are my behaviors in alignment with the Sermon on the Mount? Because you may have entered, but you may have wondered a little bit. And I think there's a good evangelical decision for us to evaluate which path we're walking on. So, Let me summarize this. Enter, but be warned. This gate is exclusive. It is not easy. You are prone to evil, and you're gonna have to leave the crowds to do it. But it's also hard for another reason. So let's turn our attention to verse 15 here and look at our second pairing of twos. Verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Again, we had two pairings of twos. The first, we had a narrow gate and a wide gate. Those are narrow or true followers. Those that go through the wide are not. Now we come to trees. We have a healthy tree that produces healthy truth and we, fruit, and we have a diseased tree that produces unhealthy tree or ba- uh, fruit, good gracious, or bad fruit. So what's Jesus telling us here? As he said, enter by the narrow gate, he begins verse 15 by saying, beware. Beware, pay attention. The first thing you need to see here is choose your guides wisely. As you think about the path that you're walking on, there are gonna be a lot of guides out there. And some are coaxing you towards the path of destruction and you may not be aware of it. Matthew Henry wrote that nothing so much prevents men from entering the narrow gate and becoming true followers of Christ as the carnal, soothing, flattering doctrines of those who oppose the truth. Unfortunately, just as in Jesus' day, there are still spiritual teachers today whose primary concern is not with the destination of your soul or how you live your life in the pleasure of King Jesus. But as Galatians 1 teaches, these false prophets care more about popularity, more about pleasing men instead of pleasing Christ. They want you to feel secure, comfortable, warm, and make you feel good. From these false teachers, you will not hear a lot about sin, repentance, or the radical ethical demands of following Jesus. You won't hear a lot about um, hating your own family, your own life. You won't be encouraged to pick up a cross or to deny yourself or to renounce all that you have. You won't hear about the exclusive claims of Jesus. 
You won't hear about treating others without reciprocity. You won't hear about dealing with your logs. You won't hear about exercising restraint in your accumulation of treasures on earth. Walk with me through the Sermon on the Mount. We could do this all day. But you, you will hear spiritual massaging messages that, that make you feel good, that make you come back. You'll hear a lot about love and just being a good person and tolerance and acceptance. Paul says that um, these teachers are disguised as angels of light. Jesus says that they're, look, they look like sheep, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. So let's, let's dissect that a little bit. That means that, that these are not blatantly amoral, atheistic, you know, publicly praying to Lord Voldemort type of people, right? Acts 20 would say they, they look like the, us. They're actually among us. And as they please you and warrant your favor, you may not know it, but you could be on a, a swift path to destruction. Jesus says to beware. Church, beware. These teachers are luring us away. Beware. And not only beware because of them, but beware because of you. Remember I said you're prone to evil. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth. Is that you this morning? When you get challenged by the word of God, do you run towards a better teacher that makes you feel a little bit better because that's itching ears? Be careful that you're not trying to accumulate for yourself teachers that suits your own passions. We're already prone to that. Because of the evil in our heart, we will gravitate towards that. And there will be people who look like sheep but are inwardly ravenous wolves that'll take you up on that offer. So as we think about the gate, not only is it wide because it's more appealing, because it's easier, because the masses are flowing through it, but there are teachers. People we think we can trust who slowly over time will lead us step by step to destruction. So what does that mean for us this morning? Fortunately, Jesus doesn't leave us hanging. He doesn't just say, beware. He actually tells us what to do. The verb he uses is recognize them. Recognize them. How? How are we to recognize these false teachers? My first encouragement would be to recognize them by the fruit of their lips. Prophets were those who spoke on behalf of God, who stand in the place of God and speak to people spiritual truths. So we need to pay attention to the fruit of teachers' lips. Charles Spurgeon once said, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It's not that easy to see black and white, right? He says it's knowing the difference between right and almost right. These guys are false prophets, but they look like sheep. It, it seems so true. And the best way to recognize the falsity of their message is to be so infatuated and enamored with the word of God, the only thing that is absolutely true, that we can easily discern that which is false. That's why we let what enters our mind so, to, to be so critical. That's why we as a family are trying to help our kids memorize scripture. Psalm 119.11 is the verse for this month for them. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalm 119.105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We walk through this narrow gate and it is hard. It is narrow, it is dark, and it can be lonely. You need a guide. We need a lamp, we need a light, and the Bible is what that is. It's the truth of God. So as you recognize false teaching by the fruit of lips, you have to read it. You have to memorize it, 
Sing it. Hang it in your homes. Write it on your mirrors. Pray it for your family, your kids, your friends, your neighbors. Be saturated in the word of God. Not because it's some magical talisman, but because it's true. Because it's eternal. Because it's living and it's powerful. And as we digest it and bring it into our hearts, it will transform your minds and it will transform your hearts. And it will help us grow in discernment as we recognize the falsity of teaching that is rampant in our world. Second thing I see that we can do is recognize by the fruit of their lives. Remember, these are not blatantly amoral people. They look like sheep, ministers, clergy, spiritual influencers, Pharisees, Sadducees, teachers. Don't just listen to the fruit of their lips, but look for the fruit of their lives. Whew, that is terrifying. Why? Because I'm literally teaching right now. (laughs) And I'm inviting you to engage your critical thinking as you listen, but also to look at my life, to see if our lives are in alignment with the fruit of our lips. Am I inviting you to be critical? No, please. Judgmental? No. But to obey Jesus and to recognize them by their fruits As we've learned in the Sermon on the Mount, true heart change, true change is reflected in the fruit of people's lives. So pay attention. Let me me define what fruit is for us. Fruit is not numbers and seats, budgets, or buildings. Since when did, did a litmus test for whether a person is of God or not ever be a large following, a crowd? Now, now am I saying that a big church, which by every definition of the world would be ours, Is that obviously a sign that this is led by false teachers? (laughs) No, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that it is more than that. That it can't just be a following. There's a a really popular podcast that came out over the last several months and I really hesitate even referencing it because it was hard for me to listen through it. It I'm not gonna tell you the name, but it, it chronicled the rise and the fall of a very popular preacher in a very big church. And as I listened to this podcast, the same question kept coming up like, how? Why? Like, why did no one rebuke, confront, challenge? Why did people not leave? Because there were some real abuses that were going on through this church. And they answered that in the podcast. They answered that question. And the reason was, well, look what God's doing. God's obviously in this. He's obviously working and, and moving because he's building his church. Look at what God's doing. Oh, the masses cannot be a litmus test to the fruit that Jesus is saying to recognize here. Jesus is telling us to beware and to recognize teachers by their fruits. So Galatians 5.22 should be a good test for us. Are the teachers that we're listening to loving, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, possessing self-control? Now, to cut myself a little slack and to be faithful to God's word, did you hear the word perfect in Galatians 5? No, possessing self-control, sometimes. In the trinket store in St. Simon's? No. Not perfect, but growing, repentant, broken over sin, desiring to live in God's ways. There are no perfect people. That's why we praise the Lord for sending us the perfect one who died the perfect death so that we could pursue perfection through his spirit. You hear it here Sunday after Sunday. We, we are sinners as teacher, but we magnify a perfect savior. So not perfect, but, but growing. Recognize them by the fruit of their lips and by the fruit of their lives. So let me summarize where we've been this morning. For three chapters 
in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has given us distinctives between his kingdom and the kingdoms of this world. The demands he's laid out are radical, and as we approach verse 13 and the rest of chapter seven, they demand a response. These are not suggestions that we can agree with some and kind of disagree with others. This is the Messiah, the King. He's either Lord or he's not, and he's demanding a response. Either we enter by the narrow or the wide. We walk the easy or the hard. We choose to be a despised, uh, marginalized community for the sake of Jesus, or we conform with the masses. Either we stew in our displeasure about the claims of his exclusivity, or we rejoice and praise that his mercy is more and provided us a way. What I'm saying is there is no neutrality for you, for me, for his disciples who were sitting with him on this mount. But although he bids you enter, he also says beware. This path is hard, it, it can be lonely, and it's rife with false teachers. So, again, I'm just summarizing, saturate yourself in the truth and recognize them and yourselves by the fruit of your lips and by the fruit of your lives. So right now, I'm actually going to shift gears and we're gonna lead you through a really good time of response. We're gonna take communion together this morning. So if you're serving communion this morning, I invite you to go ahead and move to the back to grab your communion and go ahead and start handing those out. But I'm not sure there could be a better way for us to reflect and respond to Jesus's conclusion here of the Sermon on the Mount than through communion. Communion is a sacrament of the church instituted by King Jesus himself designed to remember him and to proclaim his death until his coming again. Communion is for those who have entered that narrow gate, who have made a profession of faith in Christ. And if that's not you this morning, I ask that you just simply let the elements pass you by. And and as they do, I do also invite you to to think, to reflect, to, to think about the claims of Christ's exclusivity, to think about the lengths that he went through to provide a way for you. If you are partaking of communion this morning, um, the Bible would encourage us to to really do that with with two things in our hearts. The first is to reflect. I'm gonna read this from Paul's letter to the Corinthians in chapter 11. He writes, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Hear this, church. Let a person therefore examine himself. Then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We're invited as we take communion to examine ourselves, to reflect. So as you do that this morning, we're we're gonna give you a moment. We're gonna give you some time before we take communion together to reflect, to reflect on the path that you may be walking. To ask the Lord to search our hearts to see if maybe we've gotten off course a little bit if we've deviated from this narrow path that he's asked, knowing that as we reflect and as we look at these elements and think about these elements, knowing that he is faithful and he is just to forgive us of any of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness if we but confess to him. So communion is a time to reflect. So as the team plays, I'm just gonna step to the side and give us a few minutes to just reflect for a moment. Then I'll come back up and lead us through partaking of communion.